Today, I am joined by Josh Slocum. And Josh, you host the Disaffected podcast. And I really love listening to your commentary. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts over the years. And I, I think that your observations about culture and about individual behavior are really on the nose so often. And I'm delighted to be able to speak with you one-on-one -on -one today. So thank you very much for joining me. Well, likewise, um, I was uh, my attention was very quickly drawn to your story at Antioch uh, when I saw it, um, because, uh, you know, I, every week when I introduce the show, you know, the weekly show we do, um, I say that, you know, this is the show where we talk about politics and culture through a psychological lens. And the show has a thesis, if you will. It has a hypothesis. And, and that is that uh, the kinds of abuse dynamics and the kind of psychology that the 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 mind and emotional structure of people that we think of as domestic abusers, child abusers, things we're used to seeing in abusive homes, that domestic abuse has become public and feral, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And and that a lot of this comes down to um, a, an increase, in my view, uh, a definitely a numerical increase. I am saying that I believe that more people are actually clinically affected by this, mm -hmm. but also a larger cultural increase in the acceptance of what are narcissistic and emotionally unstable behaviors that are characteristic of cluster B personality disorders, such as narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic, antisocial. And as, you know, to, um, you know, I think we started describing the show uh, when we started a couple of years ago, talking about the social justice left having gone mad. And mm -hmm. I, I changed that a little bit because I no longer say the social justice left because I believe that it is the mainstream left now. I think that it has, it has actually captured the mainstream mm -hmm. hearts of people, even though they may not, and many of them don't understand mm -hmm. the kinds of, well, narcissistic abuse behaviors that they are endorsing. They don't understand that that's where it's coming from. So when I saw, um, and, and I had noticed that what is called therapy in the 21st century looks nothing like what I understand a genuine therapeutic process to be about. I have been distressed to see so many, and I'm going to use the term therapist broadly. I understand there are different licensure categories. There are different degree programs. I understand that. Um, but just for the sake of conversation, therapists um, who, to, to my eye, seem to, and a great, a great number of them seem to endorse and validate, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Um, cluster B behaviors in their clients, um, uh, calling narcissistic ego preening and uh, social abuse of other people as a form of personal empowerment, hmm. um, uh, almost universal encouragement of people to see themselves as victims and objects who are acted upon, but who have no agency of their own. Hmm. And when I saw you talking about this, I said, I mean, I'm, I I wasn't happy about your personal misfortune, but I was like, this is somebody who's been in, in therapeutic training who, who actually sees it and is saying it from the inside. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't heard very many people say that. So I was immediately drawn to your story. Oh, thank you. And thanks for 
laying that out. And I, when, when you're talking about the way that the culture um, has, has become more and more tolerant and accepting of certain things, the social, the creep, it's like this, this parallel creep of, you know, disordered personality traits, which would, uh, you know, and I, I would say that I've seen that as well. And I, I can remember the late nineties when reality TV really started. And I thought this is not good. And I I'm watching how kids are responding to this. And, you know, as somebody who was already, um, I was in my early twenties, I guess, around that time, watching this new phenomenon really take over and seeing how it was changing the youth culture. Yes. And then cell phones and selfies and Instagram, and just the, the way that we've come to, to think of ourselves in terms of a profile that we're projecting into the world. I, I, that, that trend, that's such a, it's, it's interesting to see that creep through, but then also the social justice creep that you're describing where at one point this was sort of this far left niche and it's gradually become just part of the culture and it's crept in. And so now it's the, it's, it's the standard, it's the mainstream. And a lot of these ways of thinking have just become normalized and tolerated. Yeah, and, and the therapy, your um, excuse me, your critiques of the therapy profession are also really interesting to me because as I was going through the program that I entered, I was a, a returning student, a career changer at my at the point where I entered this graduate program, and I also found that the way therapy was being framed was something very different than what my perspective had been prior, and I had engaged with therapy over the years. I'd had a number of counselors and experiences in counseling. And the way it was being presented was very different. The way we were being trained was very different from what my conception of it had been and what I think classical conceptions had been, not only for the social justice, but also for there were other criticisms that I had of the program. And um, I could go into those. I don't know if those would be interesting. A lot of it's that therapists are being trained to be technicians that are treating patients according to insurance schedules rather than according to what individuals actually need. But, you know, that kind of gets into the weeds on that. But one thing I wondered is you're, you're so psychologically astute and interested in human behavior. And did you ever consider going to school to become a counselor or to, to study psychology yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I have, I've considered it many times and, and it's been suggested to me uh, many times by, uh, you know, sometimes by, therapists and people working in it. Um, I think that um, uh, well, I, I won't say never because uh, I've <laughs> I've been through so many changes in the way I think and 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 the way I see the world that I never would have expected to change my mind about that I just don't say never anymore. But I think that right now um, I think that being uh, being a commentator and working um, as a freelance consultant and coach mm -hmm. uh, to people might, it suits me better right now. Um, there, there are, I'm a loud mouth, right? I, I'm a loud mouth. I, every, everybody who, who has watched my, uh, my show or knows, you know, that I'm sort of a big personality. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, and you, you have when you're a therapist, you have obligations to your clients. You have boundary obligations um, that are very, very important. 
um, and that 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 I think need to be maintained by any professional. But I think that I personally might, ex, you know, experience that as a little more constricting. Mm-hmm. And it, um, but I would, you know, I wouldn't want to, I, I wouldn't want to be a professional and and not be able to offer people, you know, what they need there. So I, I think this suits me better right now. And my hope, I don't know if I'm right. Experience will tell. People will tell me. But my hope is that the people I speak to um, in my consulting and coaching sessions, you know, I tell them that obviously this is not therapy. I'm not a degreed therapist, but um, I am much more conversant than the average layperson with these concepts. And I have a lot of personal experience in my family background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe what I can offer to people that they could not get from a therapist is the ability to talk to somebody who will also disclose his own personal experience with this. You know, mm-hmm. that's not appropriate in most therapeutic settings, but it can be very helpful in in other contexts. So that's what I hope to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that self-disclosure piece is really delicate. And so sometimes the therapist will end up disclosing quite a bit if it's really relevant to the client. And other times they'll keep themselves pretty blank slate. But, you know, it's this delicate thing. So it sounds like you're yes. using it in a way that really benefits because the people you're working with are coming to you because they feel like they can relate to you. It's actually an important part of the relationship that you're building. And I'm sorry to say that, and I think people are right, nearly universally, the people who come to me, whether whether they book an hour with me or whether you know they just send me an email and we start corresponding or, or whatever, pretty universally people say, um, I've been in actual therapy. Why... Did I never hear about borderline personality disorder? Why did I never hear about complicated post-traumatic stress disorder? Mm-hmm. Why did I learn nothing? Why did I hear nothing about how children emotionally attach and become secure? Because these are all the things that are in the backgrounds of my clients' lives. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody, but more than 90% of people who come to me come from a cluster B family, mom mm-hmm. or dad or both, um, had some um form of cluster b personality disorder and you know which is not surprising when when you understand that you know that is one clinical way of describing people whom you might in lay terms say this person is fundamentally constituted to be abusive and dishonest or Mm -hmm. manipulative Mm -hmm. or um so emotionally fragile that they're unable to protect their children from their own emotional outbursts Mm -hmm. right cluster b I mean, you can't talk about domestic abuse. You can't talk about child abuse without talking about things like cluster B and addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but but people, you know, and so it 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 worries me how many and it, it's it, it's a self-selected sample. You know, I haven't gone out and done, you know, some sort of really high powered, well-controlled study instrument. But the lack of knowledge among people who have actual professional mental health letters after their name, that the people who seem to have never heard of personality disorders, never heard of any of these things. I'm just like, wait a minute. This mm-hmm. is the warp and woof of mm-hmm. what's going on in in the vast majority of people who seek therapy are seeking therapy uh, because they have family trauma. Mm-hmm. And cluster B is not the only place that trauma can come from. But it's by far the big majority, I I think, of of why people say, I feel really screwed up by my childhood. That's why I'm on the therapist's couch. It's it sounds like it's 
it's sort of a pattern recognition thing where once you're laying this out and you're describing this, people are hearing this and going, yes, that's what that he understands what I'm talking about. And so you're getting people who want to connect on that level and, and have an opportunity to, to analyze what that pattern has meant in their life with someone else who really gets it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And one of the big, you know, and I've had this experience when I've been the one reaching out and needing it from somebody else. And, Mm -hmm. and I've been able to do this for people who are reaching out to me. Um, So many of the terms that you and I are going to talk about, uh, I I sort of want to make a blanket uh, disclaimer. Yes, I understand that all of these terms have been overused and yanked out of context and that people don't want to hear them anymore. Mm -hmm. But I want to drag them back and remind people that there are actual objectively useful and reasonable senses of terms like validation, Mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are real things. Just because they've been abused doesn't mean that there's no such thing as actual trauma or actual need for validation. There Mm -hmm. absolutely is. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the, the validation that people can get when someone outside says, yes, you're not crazy. Mm -hmm. I recognize this behavior. You are correct that it is deranged. You're correct that it cannot be negotiated with. You're correct that it is confusing. You are reasonable to feel, yes, gaslit. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. very powerful. Mm-hmm. It was extremely powerful for me. And listen, I hate the way I'm sounding. It's extremely powerful. Are we on Oprah from like 1993? Um, but being able to have that validated for me seven years ago when I woke up personally to the personality disorder derangement of my abusive mother, mm-hmm. that was a watershed turning point in my life. It was the very first time at 41 years old that I had a taxonomy and a logical system that made some sense out of the what had seemed like a senseless and chaotic childhood and family life. Mm-hmm. So that insight to that framework really just it blew everything open for you. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I've written about this and I've talked about it on the show and I am not exaggerating. I, I like to entertain people. Um, so, you know, I, I I see the show as both educational and entertaining, but I'm not I'm not putting on any shtick here. I mean this absolutely literally at um, d- during the crisis point seven years ago, when when at the beginning of what ended up being what I call the divorce from my mm-hmm. mother, because mm-hmm. it really was more like a divorce. Um, than than any other activity. I had never heard of personality disorders. I certainly didn't know what cluster B was. I didn't know what cluster A or cluster C was. And it was my sister um, in in the height of this really bad crisis who said to me on the phone, Josh, um, our mother is not going into dementia. It's not Alzheimer's that's making her act this way. I, our mother is a narcissist, and I think you need to look up cluster B personality disorders. That was oh, the very wow. first time I'd heard of this. Yeah. And I did. And again, not exaggerating. Uh, it's not a set piece. This is actually what happened. Mm. I spent two to three days reading everything I could online and ordering books about borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, then getting deeper into, you know, the whole conception of what a personality disorder is mm-hmm. within three days. My, it felt surreal. Mm-hmm. It was like, um, it felt like my past had been sorted out in front of me, like a packaging machine that goes, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. Wow. All of a sudden, these dis 
disconnected, mm-hmm. crazy, inexplicable experiences and behaviors started slotting themselves into mm. late categories that made sense. And I could see the relationship between them. It, in many ways, it was the very first time that I felt that I wasn't crazy. Mm. It's like you had a puzzle on the table and all these different pieces and you're analyzing all the pieces, but now you see the big picture. You actually could put yeah, it together. Yeah, yeah. And even more, it's like having a puzzle on the table, but not knowing that it made a puzzle. Oh it gosh, made, yeah. Made a project, that product. it was all one thing. And these yeah. were all just random pieces of something, right? No, yeah. they weren't. They yeah. actually made the picture. Wow. That must have been just just an amazing time of mental growth for you. Oh, it was, it was the, uh, and, and anybody who goes no contact with an extremely abusive personality disorder parent mm-hmm. will, will say something similar. It was, it was the most difficult thing, uh, the most painful thing, mm-hmm. the most destabilizing time of my life. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Wow. Um, the, the, the degree of suffering was intense, but it was necessary. There isn't any way to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would not, I would not trade it. Well, and I think that one thing that your, your story it, you have that has in common with a lot of people, when I ask, when I've asked people, what made them get into counseling, what made them go into the mental health profession? Most people have a story about how uh, some psychological revelation, either counseling process or some other a diagnosis or, or something to do with that helped them make sense of their lives and helped them to, um, to feel like they wanted to give that back to other people. And you're doing that in a different way. You're, you've, you've decided to go a slightly different route where you're talking to people, you're doing public speaking about this and, and also doing the consulting and coaching, which is still giving back to people in that philosophical and, and psychological way individually. But what something else that really, that I really admire about you is that you're, you're out there having honest conversations. You're saying things that are hard to say in this culture right now. And it's not just about the, not just about cluster B and not just no, about not just personality <laughs> disorder. Yeah. You're talking about you, you are a cultural critic and a cultural observer who has the, um, I guess the courage to talk about it pretty openly and plainly in plain language. And you're not cowing to, the dictates of the the social justice um what trend that we have right now which is so restricting of speech this political correctness the, the way that we're supposed to think about race the way that we're yeah. supposed to think about sex and um and and i really admire that you are out there talking courageously and plainly about your your thoughts and so what what was it that allowed you to do that what made you comfortable doing that or or what pushed you to the point where you felt compelled to do this publicly hmm. um well there's there's i i think a couple things go into that i think that by temperament and by nature i've always been um outspoken um that's that there's some personality traits that i can see going all the way back to early childhood mm-hmm that would probably be there regardless of the fact that child abuse happened in my house. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's nature and nurture and, mm-hmm. and I think it's part of my nature. Um, for, from the, from the time I was a little kid, I've been keenly aware of and sensitive to what I perceive to be injustice and lying in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. Um, even as a young boy, it, 
it it aggravated me and distressed me a great deal um, to see and know that people around me were lying or pretending that a bad thing was a good thing mm -hmm. or pretending that a victim was actually a perpetrator mm -hmm. or uh, the sense of injustice um, angered me so deeply you know, and then you combine that with the fact that I'm the type of person that things are just apt to fly out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> I have a little more control over what I say than I did when I was younger, but that that's just my temperament and my nature. And, you know, I spent most of my life as a leftist progressive. Mm -hmm. I'm not anymore um, for a lot of reasons. And I... I, it was a gradual process of changing my mind. It took years. It started with the break from my mother, but it's it's a change of mind that has taken, well, it's probably still ongoing, but it's been seven years now. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't instantly drop my membership in the Democratic Party, you know, that day. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that that confronting the reality of my family psychologically would also mean confronting the reality of my own psychology. The parts of it were broken and my own adherence to what I now recognize were untruths, um, misrepresentations, things I believe, most of what I believed was wrong. Uh, I now believe. Uh, I, I am so worried. I'm so worried about where we're going as a society, both in terms of what we're doing to children, the kind of, the kind of suffering that children and young people are going through. And the fact that those children and young people become the adults who start making the decisions and we're already feeling the effects of that. Mm -hmm. um, the millennials are in charge and management now. And what everybody said was going to happen has, in fact, happened. Mm -hmm. um, I'm so worried about that. And I'm so alarmed. When I had that revelation about. Uh, uh, long story short, my mother. Um, has my my closest approximation i would say that my mother has cluster b personality disorders right so as, as you know um i don't know how conversant your your audience is but as you know there are ostensibly four cluster b personality disorders borderline narcissism histrionic and antisocial mm -hmm. um I, that makes for for a neat taxonomy, but my view now is that there is such a state of mind and there is a kind of disposition that we label cluster B. Mm -hmm. That is a real thing in the world. There's a measurable percentage of the population that, that we can describe this way. Mm -hmm. I no longer believe that most people fit into only one of four categories. I, if I were in a diagnosis, if I had the actual medical power to diagnose, my diagnoses would, would not be borderline personality disorder, uh, comorbid narcissistic, my diagnosis would be cluster B, mm -hmm. features of dot, 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 then go to the next one, dot, dot, dot. Um, but for working purposes, the closest approximation is my mother has an equal helping of both borderline and narcissistic personality disorders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a toxic and dangerous combination. Um, and I just lost my train of thought. So, so you're describing the process of of kind of having this revelation or this realization yes. about so when not I realized, only your family, but the culture at large. When I realized that about about my mother and my family, mm -hmm. um, it took very little time for me to say, holy shit. 
holy shit. The psychology animating my frightening childhood home is exactly what's going on in public right now. This is narcissistic abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I made that connection, um, yeah, I felt... Um, I'm worried enough that I feel compelled to to say something about it. Um, but I also feel an ethical or moral obligation to I, I I have changed my mind about political and social issues that in my younger life I was very passionate about and I did a lot of activism work in. And Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a moral obligation to correct some of the mistakes that I made. Um, And, or at least to be one example for younger people who may be the leftist that I used to be, or the partisan with an unexamined partisanship in the way that I used to have it. Um, That's why. I think it's interesting that you call it unexamined partisanship, and I can relate to that myself really well. I was always on the left. I I remember describing, I, I, I was telling you a little bit before we hit record about my own relationship with my mom, where when I was a kid, I, I thought she was wrong about almost everything. And I've kind of come around to where I think she was probably right about many things that, that I, and I wish that she had lived long enough for me to be able to tell her I've had these realizations about things, but I can remember one time telling her, no, mom, I'm about as far left as a person can be. So I actually described myself that way. And uh, that would have been in my twenties, I guess, but the over time I, so I I'm still trying to figure out and, and tease apart. Did the left leave completely and it no longer resembles at all what it was before or was it always kind of this thing and I was blind or some combination of the two? And I, I kind of think it's probably some combination of the two. But um, yeah, I've had a similar wake up call and a similar time frame to to yourself, to what you're describing. Where, what did it for you? What caused you to start thinking differently? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think I think a part of it was watching what happened with Bernie Sanders and the DNC. With the after the caucus, after the uh, the primaries for uh, for Hillary and Bernie, watching how that went down, that dirty dealing between the DNC and Bernie, and I was a Bernie fan, uh, Sanders fan uh, at the time, and I think that that really made me um, that I I lost a lot of respect for the Democratic Party, but I still wasn't gonna as you I, you were talking about like you didn't hand in your card right away. I didn't hand in my card right away either. I was it was. But that was a chink for me. Yes. And then um, going back to uh, some of the stuff with Trump also, I will say that that was part of it as well. I didn't ever quite get caught up in the full Trump derangement syndrome, but I, (laughs) you did. So I was, I wasn't liking him. I didn't like him. I wasn't going to vote for, I had this, I, I was pretty anti, but I was watching the way people were talking with this fervor. And I thought, that seems a little bit exaggerated when you watch what he says in the speech and then you watch the way that they portray it. And it seemed like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like there's total full on meltdowns. And I'm like, well, I listened to what he said and it didn't, you know, so there was, I was watching the, the, you know, the man behind the curtain a little bit there. So that was part of it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> It's it's interesting. I this I think this is a reflection of, you know, 
one of the things I've said many times is that, and this is not the only way to describe the situation that we're in. There's other ways to do it. Um, but this is one way that I think gets at something. In some ways, it is as if our culture here in America has a society-wide case of borderline personality disorder. Mm. Or, or another way to think of that might be that our entire country is an example of the classic two-person dyad that we often see, uh, that the mental health often sees. The uh, A couple, a married couple, a romantic couple, one has borderline personality disorder, the other has narcissistic personality disorder or maybe sociopathic traits mixed in there. Uh, and they, the, their complementary brokenness mm. attracts each other. And so they relate within that dynamic at their worst to each other because those two things feed each other. Mm. So we, we might look at, I mean, I, and I have said, you know, I think that the American public, and I, I, this, this is particularly the case with the left right now, because I, I think the left is just as abused. Um, the regular people are just as abused by their, their political leaders as I feel abused as a citizen mm -hmm. uh, by them, but they don't know it. They're still in the enabling mode. They're mm -hmm. still like, no, my husband's wonderful. And, you know, if he blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, if you look at Trump and, you know, in my in my opinion, um, it, Trump is to me a classic grandiose narcissist. Um, um, I, I have no problem saying, yes, I suspect that he has narcissistic personality mm -hmm. disorder. Uh, but I think all of them do at that level. Joe Biden, Barack Obama, yeah. um, all of them. What changed my mind about Trump is uh, um, what I no longer believe that I used to believe I don't think he is nearly as actively malignant and dangerous as the left believes he is. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not to excuse his faults. You know, yeah. he would not be my first choice of a candidate either. He's got mm -hmm. a lot of problems, but yeah. he's not the he's not the Machiavellian devil right. um, that people that I believed that he was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, I think that now that the smooth talking, if you will, the more covert narcissism mm -hmm. of Barack Obama is far more dangerous and effective. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, all this other stuff, but I, Trump is emotionally provocative. Mm -hmm. He's, uh, and particularly to certain groups of people, I was extremely emotionally provoked mm -hmm. by Trump back in 2016, 2017, 2018. Um, this isn't true for everybody, but it is true for me. Mm -hmm. I realized when I stopped reflexively hating him simply because he was him, I realized that a lot of my displeasure with him was out of my own insecurities. Um, I mm -hmm. saw him and see him still as vulgar, mm -hmm. um, down market, um, a rich man who never learned how to have money with any taste, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Why do I care about these things? Well, because I come from poor white trash and I spent most of my life being mm -hmm. a conscious class climber and trying to make sure that nobody ever knew, you know, that I came from a trailer park. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it was yeah, more it's about like, me it's like it he's your nemesis me. in the way he's holding up some of your right. own. Yeah. But I think a lot of people went ballistic. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of women particularly mm -hmm. uh, went ballistic. Oh, um, comments about women that were so offensive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, I can also understand it because, you know, he does, you know, his rhetoric and his presentation is reminiscent of many classic abusive husbands. Yeah. You know, 
So I think yeah. there yeah. is a legitimate reason why a number of women would find him triggering. Yeah. But the problem is that I think, and I, I was among these people, just went way too far uh, mm. and had no perspective. And we have all engaged in splitting behavior mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over this. And of course, again, I know you know this. I just don't know the I don't know the level of your audience in terms of familiarity. Splitting is a concept we talk about where we see something as all good or all evil, or a person mm-hmm. is all good or all bad. There's no gray area in between. Um, all people split and ha- are capable of splitting to some degree, but it is a particularly heavy feature of borderline personality style thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what the dynamic that a lot of us have gotten into with a figure like Trump. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And it's it's interesting you, the way you talk about what he represented in terms of class. There is yeah. that that I think that uh, there was a strong feeling of we don't want this to represent us as a as a, a nation. This is not yeah. this is not this guy isn't wearing the suit the right way. He doesn't he's not the well-spoken, uh, slick, intellectual, academic looking person we want to represent us. He's kind of vulgar. And yeah, I think yeah. that there was a lot of reaction to that for sure. Um, and speaking of that, I, that's one of the things that I, I feel like we've we've gone too far culturally in worshiping expertism and mm-hmm. academics and credentials and feeling like we need somebody else to tell us what to do. We certainly saw that with COVID. It was this, uh, you know, and I don't actually know where you are on, on the COVID thing. So I don't want to presume, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure you've probably talked a lot about it. I felt like it was a, a huge overreach and the the way that the government responded to it was way scarier than any absolutely virus absolutely. going around. Here's I, well, I'll say it very plainly. Um, uh, and you you don't need to assent to this. I'm not putting words in your mouth. Um, but in in my view, there was no pandemic. There mm-hmm. was an, a virus that existed, an illness that existed. There was not a pandemic in any sense of that word that made any sense before 2020. This was not the Black Death. This was, I, I, I'm sorry, I do not believe it was any worse than a bad flu season. Um, I believe that most of the death counts are extraordinary exaggerations. I don't believe anything that's coming out of the medical uh, research industrial complex. And our both our president, um, our major uh, federal agencies, and down to state governors and down to the local level, this was a period of the most flagrant violation of the United States Constitution I have mm-hmm. ever seen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I, this is not an opinion. It is a mm-hmm. fact. Mm-hmm. That happened. You know, our constitutional rights were shredded uh, at every level of government. And people said, shred me harder, daddy. Govern harder, daddy. Mm -hmm. I am so disgusted and horrified by what happened. And I I believe I will never look at my fellow citizens the same way again. My, My view of our society has fundamentally and permanently changed. I think this was an object lesson for those of us who have our eyes open. This was an object lesson in actual human nature and where human nature can go when it is provoked into excessive fear. And I believe that what I learned, sadly, is that more people than not are not trustworthy in situations like this. The majority of people will buckle under to authority and they will tell on their friends and they will 
turn a blind eye to your persecution if they are not courageous enough to say this isn't right. So that's what I think about COVID. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I'm glad you're putting a fine point on it. And I, I I tend to agree with almost everything, maybe everything you said there. I I don't know how severe the virus was. I I don't know. I I but but ultimately does it matter? You you threw out the book on how government and citizens are supposed to interact and we shouldn't do that for any reason. That shouldn't there yeah. that's there for a reason. It's there to protect us in dire times. And it was completely ignored. I think it shows us, yeah, um we we no longer have a functioning constitution. Um, we are not a constitutional republic. That may be the name that we put on it, but we are past that. That day is over. Um, the number of people, and I include the vast majority of people in my life, professionally and personally, I'm sorry to say, didn't measure up. And that's why they're not part of my life anymore. Uh, the number of people I worked with, people that I have been friendly with, up to and including dear longtime personal friends. Mm-hmm not only did not object to the government overreach, the um, the illegal, I'll give you an example. Um, our governor in Vermont, Phil Scott, nominally a Republican. <laughs> Actually, he issued a series of executive orders, just like Joe Biden did, just like so many state governors did. One of them was a prohibition on walking out of doors in the state of Vermont with anyone who was not a member of your physical household. That was a violation of his executive decree. Going outside with a non-household member? You can go outside and you can walk, but you can only walk next to people who are from your pod, your house. The the very fact that that idea even occurred Mm. to an elected official is a sign of deep civic rot, right? It shouldn't even have, he shouldn't even have dreamed of it. Right? No, it's such an overreach. It's but ridiculous. But went along with it. And when I said, am I allowed to, well, I'll not swear. When I said, mm, you, mm-hmm. um, absolutely not. And by the way, how bloody dare you? How dare you? Yeah. That you can tell me who I can walk with outside. Not only did that surprise people? But people got angry at, at outspoken people like me. Mm-hmm. Randy Killer. Yeah. You don't care about society. You don't care. You're just a filthy right wing, selfish capitalist. These people literally had no emotional, personal, philosophical or political investment in their own constitutional rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. None at all. That woke me up. No, it's when you were describing the you were you were, used a metaphor uh, just comparing uh, the country to an ab- abusive relationship dynamic. This is what I pictured. I pictured these these same people that you're talking about, the people who were so govern me harder, you know, the, the ones who were so rabidly pro-restriction that they wanted restrictions on themselves and they wanted to mute extra on you and they were going to defend that. It It's this delusional, like it's, and it and it made me think. I, I thought your metaphor was really good because it's like trying to talk to someone who's in an abusive relation dynamic, but they're not ready to hear it. They don't want to hear it yet. Yeah, and and that's you know that's another lesson I learned. Um, think about it. You know, for anybody listening or watching this who comes from um, a household with domestic abuse the way I do, one thing I'd like people to know 
so they feel a little bit less incompetent and inadequate because all of us feel incompetent and inadequate when we come from backgrounds like this. We children from abusive households are often late bloomers when it comes to understanding grown-up life lessons. There are things that I only learned in my 40s that people from stable backgrounds knew by heart by 20 years old. Mm -hmm. So don't beat yourself up too much if it took you decades longer to learn a basic lesson about other people. It's a pretty common outcome. Um, the um, I, I think that... Uh, why am I stumbling over my words right now? I knew what I wanted to say a second ago. Um, recognizing that other people don't necessarily want the things that you think that they want, or that a lot of what we say about ourselves and about our society when times are good and times are easy are myths. And when they're put to the test in extremis, we see who we really are. Mm. And I did not know who we were as Americans the way I believe that I know now. Mm -hmm. um, and we are not the people we think we are. We are not the people that we would like to think of ourselves as being. We don't measure up to those ideals. We can, we can make progress, but we have to first understand where we're failing. And we're failing at a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we've been, and this is broadly true of the industrialized West. I think there's something to the argument that you hear from some people who talk about this, that our lives have been so cushy for so many decades, and they have been. Right. Um, that we have, we have no real idea what hardship actually is. And we don't really have any idea what, what it means to lose our freedom and what freedom really means. Mm -hmm. um, because life has been so easy. I mean, look at look at look around you. Look at the people that we call the poor today. Okay. Oh, yeah, this is gonna piss some people off. Do you see how I enter that with relish? <laughs> um, I grew up poor, but what does that mean? Single mother household, welfare payments, no father in the house. Uh, when there was a father in the house, he was a, an abusive pedophilic would be uh, attempted murderer. Gosh. Um, you know, movie of the week. <laughs> um, uh, very typical, right? Um, we we never had any money. We moved more than a dozen times. We moved house more than a dozen times in the first 13 years of my life. That's a lot. Yeah, but well, this is also common for kids who come from households like mine, right? Mm -hmm. You know, my mother is a borderline and a narcissist and, a, and an eternal victim. And it was always the landlord's fault. It was always her stupid boss for not recognizing her, her talent and firing her. Every Everybody else in the world, nobody, my mother never did nothing wrong, never. Mm. It was always someone else who made her have to do this, right? Mm. That's what I was weaned on, victimhood. Um. But okay, so we were poor and we were white trash. That's that that is the description of, of the kind of people I come from. I come from mm -hmm. white trash. Mm -hmm. Um we I never went to bed hungry once. We never missed a meal. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. We had a television set. We had a telephone. We had a refrigerator. We had a car. Half the time we had a car. Maybe it was 15 years old and rusty, but it was a car, right? Mm -hmm. Is that poverty compared to Dickensian London with children who are out there shaking a cup and literally in the workhouse? Is it poverty compared to people in third world countries who survive on like 50 cents a day mm-hmm. and and eat nothing but rice and don't ever get any meat? Mm-hmm. American describing poverty. a poverty in which people are still getting their basic needs met, their basic and fundamental needs Not only their needs basic met. needs, but for God's sake, our, our poor are fat now. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I don't think people realize how extraordinary that is. It, it's changed just gradually enough that 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 this got slipped in to the normal slot in our minds. Excuse me. You're standing out on a street corner. I see this with panhandlers all the time. And no, I don't give the money I used to, but I have, a, have had a complete change of heart about how to deal with this issue. The panhandlers in Vermont are look nothing like the bums or uh, railroad boxcar living guys that, of of folk songs of yore. Mm-hmm. These are often young, fit, mm-hmm. muscular men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm like, what are you doing standing out here? You know, go go get a job roofing. Um, uh, morbidly obese people, right? Um, these are not people who don't have enough to eat. These are people who are standing with cardboard signs at intersections and highway off ramps on their phones doing this. Yeah. What kind of bloody poverty is that? It's a really interesting phenomenon. And I don't know. I haven't heard very many people talking about what's going on with homelessness. You know, it's uh, I I can remember being I was I lived in Seattle for a little over, I guess, around a decade. Sorry. I don't live too far from Seattle now, but just far enough, which is lovely. But uh, living in Seattle, uh, I guess this would have been like 2017, 2018-ish. I'm at the gas station pumping gas, and a man starts to approach from the from the building, from the gas station. I thought it was the attendant. Young guy, good looking, um, walking towards me. And he, I, I thought he was going to say something to me. So I'm, I'm like wondering, because he's making a beeline. He stopped right in front of me at the trash can that was in front of me and he bent over and he starts rifling through with his hands and he picks up a Slim Jim from it and he puts it in his mouth and continues to rifle through. And it wasn't until he did that, that and I was kind of shocked by that, that I realized I'm looking at a homeless guy, a young homeless guy from that tent camp that's like a block away. And and so it's this and I don't know, I might irritate people too, but please do. I mean, engage with it. Like if you tell me, you know, comment, that's what the comments are for. I try to read them. Tell me what you think. Um, The uh, it seemed like it's an optional subculture. It's an opt-in subculture in some ways right now. And it's, that is a very different thing. And that's not what you're describing in your childhood, but this, I'm just kind of tangenting off of some things you said. No, it's, it's, I think it's a correct observation. Um, you know, I, I think I think I think it's it's pretty well known that, you know, with with leaving aside the opt in sort of, you know, I can see young people going, oh, I live on the streets, man. You know, yeah. uh, leave that aside. Yeah. Uh, but talk about the people who we might actually consider truly homeless. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty widely known that the majority of these people are dealing with one of the other or a combination of mental illness and drink or drug addiction. Right, right. 
Um, and and many times these these things are not they're not things they were born with. They are consequences of intergenerational trauma, neglect and poverty. Right. So you need to break the cycle some way. Mm-hmm. Um, that may be true. But. You know, uh, lack of personal responsibility is also a huge feature of the American conception of self these days. Mm-hmm. We do not. And I used to be one of these people. Um, I was a victim, you know, I was a victim of homophobia and I was a victim of this and a victim of that. And of course, you know, some things did happen. I have actually been victimized. People do actually get victimized, Mm -hmm. but it's much easier today to simply see yourself as a victim and to complain about it and cry about it and get patted on your head Mm -hmm. and given a little bit of help than it is to say, what am I doing? What patterns of behavior in my life are leading me to find the same relationships and the same dead ends over and over again? We don't like to talk about that anymore because that's victim blaming, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you take this with homelessness and like here in Burlington, and I call Burlington mini Seattle. Burlington yeah. is Seattle simply just about a tenth the size. I've heard you describe it and it sounds, yeah, it sounds it's like hell. a similar culture. Yeah. <laughs> It's 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 dreadful. Um, so when I go to um, uh, when I go to the studio to make the show every weekend, it's it's in a building on our um, on our main drag downtown, which is a pedestrian. Um, you would think of it as Main Street. It's called Church Street. It's cobblestones and you know pedestrian promenade. It's it's very you know late nineteenth century Victorian shop town, right? Okay. I park on the block perpendicular to where my building is. And about two months ago, the, the city of Burlington, which is completely captured by woke, there's there's no possible, it's not even just the left, it's completely captured by the most extreme left of the left. Mm. Um, their, their way of um, helping the homeless in Burlington was to build, um, this is one block from the studio, Right in the middle of a residential neighborhood downtown, they built a series of homeless pods. These are teeny tiny little structures. They're like little wooden hats. They're the size of sheds, right? Okay. And there's like 15 of them behind a chain link fence mm. in a parking lot. Just like you're like you're walking down the street, it's like Victorian house, farmhouse, Victorian house, farmhouse, pod slum. Village. It's Victorian a slum. house. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. It's it's gross. Yeah. Um, and these these are, you know. If you're homeless, you can just help yourself to them. You know, okay. you can sleep in them overnight. You know, and people are like, oh, my God, Josh, why are you so mean? Do you want people to get frostbite at 30 degrees? But no, of course, I don't want people to get no, frostbite. No. But first of all, it's not, you know, mm. <sighs> what has happened in two months is exactly what you would predict has happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm now much it. more nervous about parking my car down there Mm -hmm. um, for fear of getting it broken into. Um, Now what I see is exactly what I said was going to happen. Um, The homeless people, many of whom, of course, are clearly getting a surfeit of calories every day. Mm -hmm. They are not underfed. They are not unphoned, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, They are, and and half the time they're drunk or on drugs. Mm -hmm. They're using other people's houses they're using their front porches as their living room. Mm. They're simply deciding to congregate with their friends on other people's front porches yeah. to smoke their crack or their fentanyl or to throw up from, from being drunk. 
um, and and to as as such people are wont to do um, have their domestic disputes vocal and out loud in public. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. baby daddy. <laughs> I mean, just it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. And yeah. Yesterday. I, so what's happening now? Mm-hmm. Some of these houses down there are suites that are they're like mostly therapists. Right. Okay. So these are yeah. substance abuse mental health treatment, mm-hmm. you know, they're all putting signs up now, brand new signs, no loitering, no, no drug using, mm-hmm. no sitting on porch, right? Because they're scaring clients away. People don't want to walk down there now. Right. But, yeah. this, but we've helped the homeless, haven't we? I know. And I think that that's, that's the key point right there is that it's not like, you know, in criticizing these things, it's not like you or I are throwing these people away. These are, these are human beings that deserve compassion. And, and we would love to see they have, they're throwing themselves life. away. Though. They're throwing they're themselves throwing away. Themselves and are these policies helping? helping. And the policies are, are supporting, as you say, supporting that and taking everybody else down with them. Yep. So it's a, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what the solution is. I wish I knew, but I certainly see like these free, like these come use your drugs here spaces and like Seattle's policy of not being able to move tents that are on the sidewalk. So they can just put a tent anywhere they want on public property and you have to leave yeah. it there. So it it does seem like a it's it. And it's all part of the same cultural slide. It's all part of the same big cultural picture that something's happening here. And, 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 you know, just coming back to one of the things that I appreciate about you is your ability to wade into these issues and just just have an honest, frank conversation about it. And that's one of the things that I don't feel like we see represented in very many spaces. And did you did you start the uh, disaffected podcast prior to COVID or was it was it after 2020? No, during during uh, okay. during January of 2021. OK, so full on year in. And uh, or well, almost, I guess. And in do you, do you have any sense of optimism about things, or do you feel like what where do you what is your sense of where we're going? I'm afraid it's I don't I do not have optimism. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I can't I can't. No, it's okay. It's good. Yeah, no, I think we're in a very bad way, and I do not predict that we're going to get out of that bad way before it gets worse. What I do you could see? Be wrong. What 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 do you see as like the what do you, what should we do? What do individuals do with these things? Do we band together and form parallel structures? Do we, what do you, what's the way forward? Right. Uh, big question. Nobody can answer it. No single person can answer it. Um, I'm, I struggle with it. And I'm sure the same way you struggle with thinking about what do we do about the homeless? What do we do about this? I, th- I think a lot of things need to be done, but whether they can be done is a question, an open question for me. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that I am good at mm-hmm. is having these very frank conversations without apology. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not only does it suit me temperamentally, but um, and I don't mean to be self-aggrandizing, but I think and I'm not perfect and I make mistakes and I piss people off sometimes when I shouldn't, that's all true. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm actually, I think that my approach and there are other people like me there. I wish more people would take this approach, but um, 
I am I'm very deliberate about wading into the most controversial topics. This is important without affecting an apologetic stance. Mm-hmm. I'm not apologizing. I'm not asking for permission because I think that that's invalid. No one has to ask permission. No one has to pre-qualify and pre-defend everything they say by, you know, and even I do that to some degree still. It's so difficult to say anything without saying, first, I recognize that there are exceptions and I'm not saying it because people personalize everything so yeah. much. Yeah. Um, I think I'm good at that. And my hope is that at least maybe even just the example of seeing somebody who's willing to do that and not be cowering in terror at the Mm -hmm. consequences will embolden other people to speak out Mm -hmm. because we need input and expertise from all different kinds of people. Uh, You know, I think that the solutions to our problems are going to come out of really candid conversations. They're not going to come from an audience listening to a leader I think that's been one of our major mistakes. I'm not a leader. I don't want to be a leader. And I don't want you to want a leader. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I, I try to get to people. You know, not only am I not going to be, because I get this sometimes, and I'm, I'm sure you get it to some degree too. The minute you have a show or a podcast, you begin to be seen as a quasi leader, public figure of some sort of thing in your domain, Right. I'm not people will say, okay, Josh, well, you complain about all this stuff all the time, but what are the solutions? And I stop and I say, wait a minute, that first of all, that's an invalid uh construct that you just put in front of me. You just put me into the slot of I am the teacher who's going to show you how to do the math problem. Mm. Uh-uh. No, no. I'm going to turn it back around on you. What's your solution? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the answer. He doesn't know the answer, but if we talk with each other and in front of other people, mm-hmm. we're going to come up with answers. These things come out of process, not out of one one brilliant mind or one perspicacious, you know, person who has a brilliant idea. Um, so that's that's what I aim to do. I want I want to encourage more, not only to to see what I believe is the factual psychological truth about why we do what we do, um, but also to embolden them to stop tolerating the abuse. And I don't mean just cut bait and run. I want people, I want people to also stand up and say, no, this is abuse. It's gaslighting. It's narcissistically motivated. It's, it's a falsehood. And I want people to say it in front of other people, especially Mm -hmm. in front of the people they're afraid to say it in front of. Mm -hmm. So I am saying we, we have to be more courageous. We have to be braver. Um, our virtue and courage is so degraded from what it was even 60 or 70 years ago that what we call brave today would have been considered just your basic moral duty. You know, like a lot of people say, oh my God, I admire you so much, Josh. You're so courageous. I don't want to be churlish and I don't want to, I don't want to be dismissive to somebody who's saying something complimentary. Mm -hmm. But what I actually think about that is then you need to raise your standards. Um, I do happen to be bolder verbally than the average person, but I'm not supremely courageous, right? I'm a podcaster and a cultural critic. I'm not, I'm not saving infants and children in Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah. And neither are you. It's ordinary courage to stand up and say, no, you can't change your sex by di- by changing your pronouns. It's not an extraordinary act of courage to recognize that cutting breasts off 13-year-old girls 
who feel a way about gender is malicious child abuse. This this stuff is not. I'm like, mm-hmm. so you see how frustrated I get. No, so, I I think that's really. I think you're you're yeah. touching on some things that are really important to me in this whole in in what's happening right now, and that's what? the courage to speak out loud and just have conversations and not feel intimidated and and con- contracted, you know, by the desire to always say things that are pleasing to everyone else. I think that's and so it's, important. It's fear. It's fear based. And people have people are right to be fearful mm-hmm. of the consequences. Right. And and I talked about this recently on one of the episodes or maybe I wrote about it on on our Substack. Um, courage is not being fearless. That's not the definition of courage. Courage or bravery is doing the right thing despite the fact that you are fearful. Right. That's what it means to me. Um, I'm not fearless. I have a. I mean, my level, you probably have already guessed this, but um, I'm not even going to tell you my neuroticism score on Jordan Peterson's personality instrument, Uh, right? I am full of anxiety and neurosis, Um, yet I do it anyway. Um, So, you know, but people are correct that there are consequences. You know, people will say, I can't do that. Well, why can't you do it? Because I'll lose my job or I'll be kicked out of my homeschooling co-op or uh, my won't like me. And I just go back and I'm like, eh, 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 stop it. Stop saying the word I can't. That's not true. I know you want to, but I'm not going to let you get away with it. Replace that with I choose not to. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes. Yes, you can. No, I don't want you to be comfortable. I know you're mad at me. I know you hate that I'm pulling the carpet out from under you, but you actually can do it. You are making a choice. And I'm not saying it's an easy choice, but I have made those choices. I got canceled. I lost my 20 year career, Mm. Um, canceled by a woke mob from within my organization, within. Wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from the left. Right. The left is always going to kill their own. Um, you know, I have, I'm unemployable in the nonprofit sector because of the things that I say, I, I was, you know, a small pond, big fish. Right. Mm -hmm. But I was the national expert on, um, funeral and burial law and consumer protection law when it came to purchasing large ticket items like cemetery and funeral purchases in the entire country. Mm-hmm. I've literally co-written a book on the laws in plain English for grieving consumers to help them avoid. This is what I did for, for 20 years was advocating for grieving people who felt that they were being exploited financially mm-hmm. um, when having to arrange for really expensive funerals. You know, it's a there's a big industry that, that generates a lot of money out of how we bury our dead. You know, um, I, I that expertise is real, right? I know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about, um, but I'm persona non grata. Um, I And I don't want to, but if I ever wanted to work in the nonprofit sector again, I'm absolutely unemployable. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've lost almost all of my friends, including people that I've known and loved for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I lost my family. I lost my friends. I've lost my job. I know what the consequences are. And I'm not saying that everybody can do it right away. And I know also that I'm I'm not somebody who has three kids that I have to feed. I recognize that people are differently situated. Mm-hmm. But I think that most of us, most of us give ourselves far too many excuses. And we claim to be much more hemmed in than we are. 
So, and given all that, given all that loss and all the risk would, and would you say it's been worth it for you to Uh have the ability to speak out? Yes. I don't know how other people, maybe some people go through it and regret it and say, I wouldn't do it again, but like there are two, yes. So the, the divorce from my mother, when I went no contact with my mother Mm -hmm. uh, seven years ago, Mm -hmm. um, my entanglement, my psychological, it wasn't just psychological entanglement, although it was deeply, you know, the relationship between a borderline mother and her son is, is often accurately described as emotionally incestuous. Mm. Um, I was deeply psychologically enmeshed with my mother had, had been all of my life in a, in a, very unhealthy way. Um, But I had also mingled my financial fortunes with her activities as well. And I lost a great deal of money and went into debt Mm. because I made some some unwise decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm still living with the consequences of that. But the most difficult thing about that was I had to face the truth. And, And what happened was my very worst fear, the one that I, the one that I was so fearful of that I had never told anyone else that it was my worst fear. I could barely admit it inside the quiet of my own mind. Mm -hmm. My worst fear was that my mother did not love me and meant to hurt me. Mm. It was true. Mm. It was true. I'm not saying that to be melodramatic. Mm. I'm describing a true reality. Unfortunately, it turned out to be true and it broke me. Mm -hmm. I had, I had what people call a nervous breakdown. Mm Um, I was as close to being suicidal as I've been since I was 13 years old when I was actually suicidal. Um, I didn't, obviously, and I'm glad I didn't. But it was, I've never suffered like that in my life. And I hope that I never suffer like that again. Mm. But um, I would not trade that. I would not change the past because I got my freedom and I got... I got to know the truth, accept the truth and say the truth. And I got to say, no, I will not ever tolerate this again. Mm -hmm. And that means more to me than anything. And the same, I would say the same thing about losing my career, um, losing my friendship circle there. And I have not been a perfect person either. You know, um, some of the friendships I've lost, um, I have contributed very bad behavior to those dynamics as well. I have hurt other people too, but for good or for ill, um, I can't live in dishonesty. I cannot do it. It hurts me. It hurts me emotionally. I somaticize the problems. It hurts me physically. Um, I can't do it and I won't do it. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's worth it. And I know that it's easy. It sounds easy to say that. And it's easy to listen to somebody say that when they're talking on a program. But if you're listening to this and contemplating what it might look like in your life, you might be very surprised what it looks like to you on the other side. Mm. It sounds like you're describing this process of, of liberating your internal self. Like you, you had this, constriction and this this falsification that you were living with inside and once you decided i can no longer do that you're right with yourself and you've made right with yourself and and 
you can deal with the world more easily when at least the internal, that internal dissonance is resolved. Yes. And I think that's true for everybody. Mm -hmm. Living in cognitive dissonance or emotional dissonance, if you Mm -hmm. will, they're often bound up with each other. It hurts. Mm -hmm. It, It can be enervating. It drains your energy. It distracts you. It takes away your inspiration. Um, but it can hurt a lot worse than that too. And, um, the, the truth hurts. A lot of truths really hurt, Mm -hmm. but there is a compensation for the pain. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's worth it. I think that, um, we are living in a culture of lies. Many of the people that we think we know, and we ourselves to some degree, all of us, not just people with personality disorders, we there are so many narcissistic masks mm-hmm. that we hide behind that we present to the public that we present to our friends these fragile avatars of who we are that hide the inconsistencies the uncertainties and the mistakes and they're not healthy mm-hmm. and i i think our society collectively and, and in an everyday way is so much more narcissistic than it ever was before. I think it's unsustainable. Something is going to give. I, that's fascinating, the concept of narcissistic masks. I would love to talk with you about that sometime. Maybe we can... We can do it again. We can do it again yeah. sometime. I would we can, love to we get can into zero that. in on some of the actual details and get into yeah. the nitty-gritty. Well, I really appreciate your willingness to just have an honest, open discussion about things that are hard. And you do it all the time, but thank you for doing it with me. Well, thank you for asking and thank you for being out there. And thank you for you. You you didn't take the easy route. You didn't buckle under and say, I'm not going to say anything so that I get my degree. And it came at great cost to you. I know it did. Thank you for doing it. Well, thank you for saying that. It's been a weird a weird project and an interesting one. And, but I'm, I'm also, I, I could, I could extol the virtues of speaking out and being true to your gut and to your, to what you think is right. And, but yeah, I thank you for saying that. And thanks again for joining me today, Josh. Thank you, Leslie.